We're looking at the subject this morning of fellowship from the standpoint of fellowship as partners. And if you look in your bulletin outline, this is the other side of koinonia's meaning. That koinonia is the word that's translated fellowship in Scripture. This Greek word has two main meanings in the New Testament. For weeks we have been studying koinonia, meaning fellowship as it depicts our relationship with God and then with one another. In a relationship, we think of how we interact with one another. And in particular, how we build each other up in the faith, how we love one another, loyal to one another, how we are engaged in spiritual dialogue for our improvement and betterment. But koinonia also depicts a partnership that we share as we endeavor to do the work of God. This aspect of the word speaks to service endeavors in which those in relationship with God and with one another join hands to do the work of God. That's why we had you read the text in Nehemiah this morning, because those people were doing a work for God and they had to join hands literally. They had to stand together against their enemies that didn't want the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt, Nehemiah 4. Now, it's an aspect here where we're understanding that in order to work together, it's very, that's very logical, isn't it? We can get more done if we work together. But the point I'm bringing out is it's more so a biblical concept, not just logical. Those in relationship can work together in partnership. But even more pointedly, think of it this way. Only those in the same spiritual relationship can partner together to complete the work of God. Think about that. Let me say it again. Only those in the same spiritual relationship can partner together to complete the work of God. Amos asks this question. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Amos 3 verse 3. King James says, can two walk together? God here is not talking about a stroll down a path in the park, arm in arm. Rather, He is talking about agreement in ideology, agreement in procedures, in methodology, in goals, in beliefs. And within context, Amos asks, Hear this word the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your sins. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so. Amos 3, 1-3. Now God is spelling out through Amos in no uncertain terms that there has been a breach in fellowship between Israel, His people, and God. And the breach is sin on their part. What are they doing? They're complaining, they're griping, they're being disobedient to His commands. They're pursuing foreign gods or idols just to name a few things. If we move back just one chapter, the previous chapter, we're told some of the specifics. There God says, I brought you up out of Egypt. I led you for 40 years in the desert to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your sons and Nazarites from among your young men. Is this not true? People of Israel declares the Lord. But you made the Nazarites drink wine, which was a violation of their vows, 
and you commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Amos 2, verse 10 through 12. Now this is a clear rejection of the word of God. They were tired of hearing God's dictums. They would prefer freedom to indulge their sin and not be reprimanded for it. Sin always breaks fellowship with God initially, and if it persists, extensively. Listen to Jeremiah's lament. They have returned to the sins of their forefathers who refused to listen to my words. They have followed other gods to serve them. Both the house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken the covenant that I made with their forefathers. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will bring on them a disaster they cannot escape. And although they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. Jeremiah 11, verse 10. So what he's saying here is they're not walking together anymore, God and His people. They're not on the same page spiritually anymore, God and His people. No, there's been a breach. And that's the second point in your outline, a breach of fellowship is possible. Say, oh no, I thought, you know, God's our God forever. You, well, do you think it can sin with impunity? No, the Lord chastens those that He loves. He's going to get on your case. And you can break fellowship with God through sinful conduct. It's a very serious thing, by the way, to experience a breach in fellowship with God. It's like a son disowning his father or daughter, her mother. And for what? It's for the gratification of one's lusts and the stubbornness of refusing a godly path. We're saying to God, like the wayward child, leave me alone. I don't care about you anymore. I despise your laws. I hate your righteous decrees. It's the very opposite. David in Psalm 119, who repeatedly says words similar what he says in verse 163, David says, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. <coughs> totally different. Things I hate <coughs> are lies and falsehood. Things I love, wow, I love, I love your word, I love your law. It is because we as God's people are in a relationship with God and His Son that Paul warns us. Now listen to the warning. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship, koinonia, it's this word, what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Belial is a name for Satan. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them, and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. 
I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters, says, my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. Here again, the emphasis on the fact that if we're going to walk with God, we have to be of the same spiritual stripe. And if we are walking with God, we cannot at the same time walk with people of the world and partner with them. Do you know that one of the great problems of the ecumenical movement, ecumenical meaning uh, worldwide uh, unity for the sake of God, so-called, but one of the big problems is that to partner with many of these religious organizations and churches, one has to give up what they have given up. Well, what have they given up? They've given up the integrity of the Scriptures, that the Word of God is not the Word of God. They've given up the deity of Christ. He's not really divine. They've given up the gospel of grace for a gospel of works. They've given up the sanctity of marriage, the purity of heterosexuality, the condoning of homosexuality, all in the name of cooperation or partnership, which is held up as superior to disagreement. Let's just get along with one another. Let's stop all the bickering and the fighting. Let's join hands and get some things done for God. Yet from this text in 2 Corinthians, Paul assures us that the fatherhood of God is reserved for those who live in a separated spiritual life with no attempt to mix orthodox faith with heresy. It's not a question of being mean-spirited. It's not a question of being uncooperative. But rather of remaining loyal to Jesus and His teachings, His Word, which is our law for living. How can we ignore or dismiss the Lord of the universe, the head of the body, of which we are members? And yet people do find ways to kind of salve their conscience so that they can disobey God in one area while claiming partnership in another. Well, we cannot compromise on principle without disowning our Lord. And that's going on in America all over the place. Went on in Old Testament times too. Hosea says, Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land mourns, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, and the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea are dying. Your people are like those who bring charges against the priest. You stumble day and night, and the prophets stumble with you. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I will also ignore your children. Let me read that last phrase again. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I also will ignore your children. Hosea 4, 1 through 6. That's our land, folks. 
That's America. Sadly, that's also the church in America. How is justice to be administered in Israel? Of godly Jehoshaphat, we are told, he appointed judges in the land, in each of the fortified cities of Judah, and he told them, here's, here's his words, Consider carefully what you do, because you are not judging for man, but for the Lord, who is with you whenever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice, or partiality, or bribery. Second Chronicles 19, verse 5 through 7. Brethren, do you know that it's okay to have a controversy with religious people who have denied the essentials of the faith? We ought to have a controversy with them. If they were ever in the faith, right? Or if they were just mouthing it. Or if they just think they're in the faith because they have religious thoughts now and again. Or they read a Bible verse once in a while. If they have denied the essentials, can they really be considered brothers and sisters in the faith? I want you to think about that. Paul has a stinging indictment in 1 Corinthians 5, and it reads this way. I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. So see, there they have, he wrote that in, in, to them and, and they said, oh, well, you know, this is too, how are we going to do this? So he goes on. But now I am writing to you, here's clarification, here's the clarification. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. What business it is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are we not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man. From among you. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. It was, in the case of Paul, the Corinthian church, people in the church, he's saying so, who were so called brothers and sisters in the faith, that's what they called themselves, but <laughs> how are they living? They're living in no different a way than the people of the world. Paul's willing to grant that the people of the world live this way, and he says, I wasn't talking about them. Of course, you're going to run into these people everywhere you go. I'm talking about the brotherhood. I'm talking about the fellowship of the church community. And why are you tolerating this in the church? So I say again, only those in the same spiritual relationship can partner together to complete the work of God. When there's a breach with God and His Word, the partnership ends because that person is no longer acting like a brother or sister in the faith, regardless of any title they take to themselves. No, by their actions they are denying the faith. And we're not talking about minor things, we're talking about serious life-dominating sins. 
immorality, adultery, drunkenness, being a slander, and idolater, and they think that they're part of the faith. In other words, this is the way they live, and the way they live is the same as the people of the world. So let them call themselves whatever they want, but you be discerning. You be discerning. You go up to them and you admonish them. You say, you know, you claim to be a brother. You claim to be a sister in Christ, but look at the way you're living. This is wrong. This is sinful. You need to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, which Paul also told the Corinthian church. It's okay to disagree with religious people. They're not living up to the basic essentials of the faith. Now, secondly, what are the features of Christian partnership? We understand we can only partner with people that are of the same spiritual stripe as us. That is, they're born again believers. They truly know Christ. Christ is in their life. They're living for Him. Those people we can partner with. But how do we do so? Well, number one, partnership in giving. In our text, the Apostle Paul rejoices in the partnership that had been evidenced by the Philippian believers. Paul calls it, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, verse 5. Now he references the first day. Hmm. What partnership had the Philippian church evidenced in those first days of their salvation after hearing the gospel preached by Paul? Well, for the answer, you have to go to chapter 4 in Philippians and look at verse 14 and following. In that text, it says, It was good for you to share in my troubles. Seems rather innocuous. It's nondescript. Just that statement is. But read on. It was good for you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I was sent out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. Oh, now we get it. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment, oh, and even more. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all of your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 4, 14 through 19. So here was a church that followed Paul's ministry even when he left their town to minister in other regions. They were kept abreast of his financial needs. And Paul says he was in need. And he acknowledged that this was the lone church sending him money. Uh, this is really hard to believe when you think about it. Where were the rest of the churches to whom Paul had brought the gospel? Why had they not participated with Paul in this very pragmatic, necessary aid? We might say, well, some of them might have been oblivious to what was required of them to carry on ministry. 
Yeah, maybe. We have that in our day, don't we? I mean, missions is not high on a lot of Christians' lists. Missions. Somehow they think God will just take care of the outreach ministries miraculously without them partnering in the project. This is the first year that the Thornville Church has not had a missionary conference, but it was not due for, from disinterest in missions. In fact, we even took on a new project in Cambodia this year. It's more due to extenuating circumstances that stalled the conference, but our mission giving continues on. And by the way, it should increase as God enables us to think beyond ourselves. It's just very biblical that we can't be just self-absorbed. In addition to not giving outreach a second thought, we know that the church at Corinth, for example, was jealous of Paul, of all things, disgruntled with Paul, yeah, and they accused him of greed, and they questioned his apostleship, although it was he who first brought the gospel to them. Talk about a bunch of ingrates. That's the Corinthian church. He had to actually defend himself, defend himself and his ministry. You can tell, I'm going to read this text, but you can tell by, by what he says in the text that he's rather reluctant to do this. But part of our spiritual fellowship is to admonish people when they're out of line. So, boy, he picks up the pen and he doesn't. Here's what he says. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? He goes on. If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights, and I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of my boast. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 11 through 18. Now you can tell by what he's writing here that he's having trouble. These people don't want to give Paul anything when he comes. They don't want to pay his traveling expenses. They don't want to put, his, put him up in lodging. Nothing. When we have guest speakers here, we give them an honorarium and we house them, usually in somebody's house. It's part of the ministry. They're coming to minister. We're going to take from them. We're going to get spiritual food from them. They're going to instruct us in the things of God in a way that we hope the Spirit of God will use to enable us to better serve the Lord. 
So shouldn't we meet their needs? Well, Karn says, nah, we're not doing that. Paul's on his own. That's his first letter. You'd think that writing the first letter, that would have corrected the problem, right? No. We get to the second letter, and he wrote this, the second letter. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so that I could serve you. And when I was with you and I needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia, here's this Thessalonian envoy, supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way, and I will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the region of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows that I do. And I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, 7 through 13. Others were coming into the Corinthian church and they were making their boasts, how great they were for God and the things they were doing, undermining, cutting Paul and so forth. And so Paul, even in his second letter, is saying, you know, when I was at your church and I had a need, even then, even then, I didn't say, folks, I need some help. Even then, what I counted on was the gifts that came in from the regions of the Ki, gifts that came to us. In other texts, he talks about working with his own hands as a tent maker, out there stitching away, selling what he could in order to pay for his bills. Now, the church at Philippi had taken a godly approach. They were deeply appreciative of Paul's ministry and they wanted the gospel to be carried into other communities that had never heard of Jesus Christ. They could not all uproot themselves from their own town and vocation, but they could and they did partner with Paul financially. I can put it bluntly. They paid his bills. They paid his bills, folks. And so, and so, they share in his success. Look at chapter 4 of our text, our book. He says, Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. Philippians 4, verse 17. Do you know this? Do you know that when you give to mission outreach, whether it's at home or abroad, that any success of that outreach is credited to you as well as to the spokesperson who actually did the talking about the gospel. This is the reward of partnership, of fellowship. That's how the work of God gets done. God's commission to take the gospel to the world is a privilege, yes, but it's also a command. It's a command. You all know this. It's not a suggestion, it's not a request. 
But God is extremely practical in this. He knows we cannot all go about preaching the gospel. So Paul writes, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, if it's preaching, let him use it in proportion to his faith. Let him get out there and preach. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. Now notice the next one. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. There you have it. It's a gift of God too. He goes on to say, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Romans 12, verse 6 through 9. Love has to be sincere. Use your gifts, whatever your gifts, and maybe your gift, I think it's in Thessalonians that Paul says, tell the or Timothy, tell the rich to be rich in good deeds. You have the resources, so use the resources for the work of God. Partnership through giving is not something we often think about. But it is a partnership. I think we think at times that we're being really big-hearted to give like this. But it is actually a command from the Lord of the church. And if we fail here at this point, we also sin here at this point. Any command that we disobey is a sin. So partnership in giving. And Paul could say to the Philippian church, you did that. <laughs> you did that from day one. You were just young baby Christians. But boy, the Lord got in your heart and, and gave you a generous heart. And you have supplied my needs. I'm traveling all around Macedonia and Achaia, all these provinces, and here comes the little envoys from the Philippian church with gifts to supply my needs. Secondly, partnership in standing for the faith. Look what he says in verses 27 and following of our text. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed but that you will be saved in that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him, since you are going through this same struggle you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship, and that's that word koinonia again, any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded and having the same love, being one in spirit and one in purpose. Philippians 1, verse 27 and following. For a number of years now, I have been warning you that hard times are coming for Christians in America. Well, they're here. It's just the tip of the iceberg, but they're here. 
Never before have I seen so much negative rhetoric concerning the Christian faith. It's everywhere. And when this happens, I think, well, let's see, we must be doing something right. Yeah. And I say that because Jesus taught us from the Sermon on the Mount at the, all these wonderful Beatitudes. We love the blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, and on down through the text. Matthew 5, verse 3 and following. But at the close of these wonderful and encouraging promises, there's a promise which many of us do not think to be so wonderful, but it is. Yet Jesus still uses the formula, and here's what he say: Blessed are you when people insult you. Blessed are you when people persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12. It has been said that people can be known by the company they keep. Well, Jesus says that when we are persecuted by the world, we are in the company of the prophets. We are in the company of the preachers of the Old Testament days who spoke for God. And his point was that there is a blessing awaiting those who share in the same kind of persecution that God's spokesmen experience. Think of Moses or Samuel or David, Elijah, Jeremiah, any of the prophets. If we're treated the same way that these men were treated, and for the same reason, that is, because they were living out the Word of God, then this is an occasion for rejoicing. Let me ask this question. Would you rather stand before God as one who persecuted the prophets or stand before God as those who along with the prophets were being persecuted? What company, what crowd do you move with? Now what is it that brings on the persecution? Are we murderers, rapists, thieves? Are we breaking into stores at night? Is that why the world hates us? Is that why we're persecuted? Peter talks about that in his book. He says, you know, if you suffer as a criminal, you're just getting what you deserve. <laughs> Don't go around saying, oh, I'm being persecuted for Jesus. No, you're not. You're suffering as a criminal for a law, being a lawbreaker. Well, is that why we're persecuted as Christians? No, Jesus goes on, Matthew 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a lampstand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Matthew 5, 13 and following. There's two descriptions here that Jesus talks about, which brings persecution our way. 
Number one, we are salty salt. And number two, we are exposing lights. Salty salt and exposing lights. We have not abandoned the salty proclamation of the good news of the gospel, and we have not hidden its light in shame. We're friends of God, we're not friends of the world. We proclaim Christ unashamedly, and we do not buckle under the world's pressure to be politically correct. We do not wash, whitewash the blackness of men's sinful hearts, and we do not paint men's deeds good when they are evil. We stand with Christ the Lord, even if it means the loss of friends or family. And because of this, persecution escalates. You see, persecution is designed to get you to back off. It's to get you to keep quiet, to tone down the rhetoric, to look the other way in the face of obvious sin. No one loves a John the Baptist. And let me say, no one loves the Jesus of the Bible. They only love the Jesus of their own making. And the point of all this is that partnership and standing for the faith is essential. Paul thus enjoined the Philippian believers, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Now this is going to be a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but you will be saved in that by God. Philippians 1, 27 and 28. Stand with Christ now. Take your lumps now and be saved. Or be among the opposition to Christ's group now and be destroyed if you don't repent. Be careful who you partner with. Some people settle for a bit of peace now only to enter hell's eternity where agony and pain never end. Poor choice. Poor decision. Partnership and standing for the faith. There's strength in numbers, brethren. So when I talk about partnership, I'm talking about us. You know, Solomon talks about a three, three-pronged cord. This is hard to break. Take three cords and weave them, weave them together. Make one cord. That's harder to break than just one cord. Strength, partnership in Christ. Then thirdly, partnership in prayer. And here again, the, Philippians, the Philippian church just shined. Listen to what he says. I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Philippians 1, verse 19 and 20. 
What's he saying? He's saying, by your faithful prayers, I know I'm going to make it. Partners in prayer. We had a discussion Wednesday night on the inadequacy of our prayer life. I think most of us feel inadequate about that most of the time. But someone reminded us that Paul taught, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Romans 8, verse 26 and 27. So Paul is saying, you know, we don't know how to pray. <laughs> but the Spirit prays for us. And God reads the Spirit's prayer requests and listens to them because He always prays according to God's will, even though we don't. So the moral of the story is just pray, folks. Just pray. Stop analyzing your fragmented thoughts. Stop analyzing your hesitant speech or your poor attitude at times. Do you ever get to the place where you just don't want to pray? I've been there. Just talk to God about one another and on behalf of one another. That's a partnership in prayer. Don't let people bear their burdens alone. Pick up a portion of their sorrow as your own. Watch you and you will see the love of God fill your hearts for one another if you become koinonia, partners in prayer. You, it, you, it, 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 you can't help it. It's a fact. We draw close to those for whom we partner to pray. I mean, if they're on your tongue when you talk to God, they have to be in your heart and your mind first. I don't pray much for people I don't care about. And I'm talking about the unnamed, unknown, you know. The when, kids, when we were kids, we were taught, well, Lord, bless it. Bless the people of the world. Bless the missionary. Bless, you know, kind of a non-nomenclature way to pray. We start praying for one another by name and for individual needs and so forth. It's partnership in prayer. We take on one another's burdens. We share each other's joys. We share each other's heartaches. We take them to the throne of God. And you don't have to sit there and think about your phraseology and how you're going to say things and whether or not this needs to be in place before you can pray for that. Just pray. Just pray. And the Spirit of God will do the translation. And He'll put it into words that please the Father. And always request things according to His will. And James says, we know if He hears us, we have our petition. We pray according to His will. Lord, help us to be partners 
in the sense of carrying on the work of God. We are in fellowship with one another. That's relationship, but how are we going to get the work of God done? We need to partner with people of like faith and certainly within our own assembly to get the work of God done. We have to at least be agreed on the essentials of the faith. We have to partner with people who haven't denied the deity of Christ or the importance of holiness and all the various things that we hold dear because your word tells us that we are to do these things. But that being said, as we do partner, then the work of God gets done. Maybe our partnership is going to be more in the area of finances because God has blessed us in some way financially that others have not been blessed. But the needs are there. And just like Paul had need, he says he had need while he's out traveling around. And no other church was helping him except this church at Philippi. Lord, I pray that our church would have a generous outworking spirit with regard to partnership financially. Secondly, let's stand for the faith. Stop cowering and worrying and fretting because our, our government is more and more secularized and more and more hostile to the Christian faith. And then help us to remember to pray for one another and to pray boldly and to pray courageously and not worry about our stuttering words and our feeble thoughts. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being partners with us in prayer. Thank you, dear Christ, for it says that you ever intercede for the saints. Wow, we've got God praying for us as his people. How great is that? If there's any here this morning, Lord, that do not know this love of Christ, the partnership and fellowship, firstly with Him and then with one another in the body of Christ, I pray that today would be their day to find You, Lord, as You reach out and find them, draw them into Your family. Honor Your Word, only honor Your Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.